I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Deuteronomy chapter 17 through 20. Moses is still giving instructions on the other side of the Jordan before they cross over into Canaan. Incidentally, this is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Chapter 17, verse 1, Serving other gods is still a death sentence. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it indeed is true, and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness." The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Now Israel, as I've mentioned before, was not a freedom of religion nation. As a matter of fact, the daily life of the Hebrews revolved around their worship of Jehovah, the one true God. In these instructions, we see mandates to that effect. First of all, verse 1 makes it very clear that any animal sacrifice must include an animal that is without blemish. Now, what about something as blatant as worshiping other gods? Well, here it is. Get caught worshiping other gods and you die. There's a caveat, though. If you report someone in Israel for serving other gods, you'd better have other witnesses. It takes two or more witnesses to convict. Oh, one more thing. If you are a witness to this heathen worship, you got to cast the first stone when he or she is put to death. If you'd like a fuller view regarding the punishment of these corrupt worship practices, then take a look at the notes on Deuteronomy chapter 13. In chapter 17, beginning with verse 8, we have Israel's equivalent of the Supreme Court. Verse 8, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And it shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. 
Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Now keep in mind, these instructions are given to the people as they are preparing to go over and inhabit their new land. They'll be spread out, decentralized for the first time in their history. This section deals with appeals made to a higher court, so to speak. If you take a legal matter to the priest or to one of the judges in Israel for that ultimate level of mediation, whether it's criminal or civil, he's the man. After he rules on a matter, if you disregard the ruling, well, it's a death sentence. Then we have in chapter 17, beginning with verse 14, rules regarding future kings of Israel. Verse 14, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, You shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. As a matter of fact, Israel did plead for a king to reign over them in First Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel, who was the judge of Israel, after conferring with God on the request, appointed their first king, Saul, to reign over them, and that was in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Now, here are the guidelines for selecting a king to rule over Israel. He must be God-chosen, a homegrown Hebrew boy, not a gold digger, have a limited number of wives, not proud or conceited, and he better obey the law. As a matter of fact, he's to copy the law himself into his own book and read it daily as king. By the way, the practice of taking other kings' daughters as wives ended up being the downfall of Solomon. Now, notice these verses regarding Solomon's wives in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says in verse 3, And he, speaking of Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Solomon's wives erected altars to pagan gods right there on the temple grounds. No wonder the northern kingdom after the death of Solomon never, never, never served God. He should have heeded these verses in Deuteronomy. In contrast, while Solomon's father David did have multiple wives, we see that in Second Samuel chapter 3, he did not indulge in excesses, as did Solomon. That brings us to chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, where we see that you've got to feed the priest. Verse 1, 
The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, whether it is a bull or sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So if a Levite comes from any of your gates, from where he dwells among all Israel, and comes with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Lord chooses, then he may serve in the name of the Lord his God as all his brethren the Levites do, who stand there before the Lord. They shall have equal portions to eat, besides what comes from the sale of his inheritance. Well, the priest had to eat, and with mighty fine cuts of meat, I might add, the sacrifice business certainly had its rewards. They received compensation from the rest of Israel for their services to the people. Within the tribe of Levi, the priesthood proper was restricted to Aaron and his descendants, according to Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. The number of eligible priests narrowed even more two generations later when in Numbers chapter 25, verses 10 through 13, it was at that time decreed that priests from this time forward would come only from the line of Aaron's grandson, Phinehas. The remainder of the tribe of the Levites were set aside for supporting duties in the tabernacle and temple, as we see in Numbers chapter 3. All of them were to be treated equally with regard to provisions. Incidentally, despite this Phinehas prophecy, there was a period of time where the priesthood was not controlled by a descendant of Phinehas. As a matter of fact, Eli, during the period of the judges, was not his descendant. He was not descended from Phinehas. However, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 to 36, that the priesthood through his lineage would be cut off. This transfer would later take place under Solomon's authority, as a fulfillment of this prophecy, and that happened in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27 and verse 35. Upon arrival into Canaan, the Levites were to inhabit 48 cities spread through Israel. That's according to Joshua 21. A rotation of serving Levites at the tabernacle was apparently set up prior to the shifts we see in David's era, which were established in 1 Chronicles chapters 23 to 26. Verses 6 through 8 here specify that the Levite who comes from outside of the region where the tabernacle is located to serve at the tabernacle is not to experience any discrimination from the local Levites. Then we come to verse 9 where we see that those Canaanites that already exist there, they have some bad habits. Verse 9, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. 
For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. You'll recall that it was their heathen practices for which God allowed the Canaanites to be driven out of the land in the first place. And that's according to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Here's what that verse says. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. So, Israelites, you better make dead sure that none of those detestable heathen practices of worship rub off on you. It's worth noting here that the practices of witchcraft are front and center in this section. Israel was to have nothing to do whatsoever with witchcraft. I think it's important to point out that while these heathen nations were not under the law of Moses, their practices of worship were such an abomination that God caused them to be driven out of their land. Now, do we see an era-spanning principle here? As a matter of fact, the wickedness of the nations in Canaan is also cited as the reason they had to be displaced in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 27 and 28. And again, we see it in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23. Can it possibly be the case that God may orchestrate the demise of nations today based upon abominable practices toward the one true God? Now, this next passage of Scripture is very important. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. It is here that Moses prophesies the Messiah, and that's validated in the New Testament by the apostles and by Jesus himself. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desire to the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Well, Moses does two things in these eight verses. First of all, he prophesies regarding the coming of the Messiah to whom he refers as a prophet here. At first glance, one might assume he's talking about Joshua. Actually, however, Moses is talking about Jesus himself. It's interesting to note that Jesus is the English transliteration of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew for Joshua. How appropriate that Joshua led them into Canaan and Jesus will lead them into the millennium. The Jews of Jesus' day understood this to be a reference to the Messiah, as evidenced by Philip in John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip points out that Jesus is the Messiah, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Additionally, we find that Jesus, after his resurrection, confirms that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, is indeed a reference to himself. He says so in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, 
And here's the way it's phrased. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's simply no other passage of scripture from the hand of Moses to which this statement could be referring. So here's a clear prophecy from Moses regarding the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Peter emphasizes that Jesus fulfilled this Mosaic prophecy in his message of Acts chapter 3, specifically verses 22 and 23. Secondly, Moses warns against false prophets and gives a set of criteria that any true prophet will meet. And here are some guidelines for anyone who professes to be a prophet. Number one, he speaks only God's words. Secondly, if he lies, he dies. Thirdly, if he speaks for other gods, he dies. And fourthly, if he's ever wrong, you can just disregard him. Now we come to another section, Deuteronomy chapter 19. What happens if they killed somebody but didn't mean to? Verse 1. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings to a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to the love of the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there, and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. So what if someone, we see here, was killed by you as a result of an accident? It says, whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past. Well, as in the example found in verses 4 and 5, what do you do? Well, in that case, you better hightail it for one of those six cities of refuge, three in Canaan and three east of the Jordan River. If you really didn't mean to do it, they'll protect you. It's bad news, though, for the guy who intended to inflict harm, in other words, a premeditated murder. They're going to turn you over to the blood relative avenger chasing you when he arrives and allow him to take you out, so to speak, according to the stipulations of verses 11 and 12. 
Elsewhere, the regulations concerning the cities of refuge are found in Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 34, and also the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 20. These cities were six of the 48 cities inhabited by Levites, three of them east of the Jordan and three of them west of the Jordan. If you'd like more information on these cities, look at the chart accompanying the notes on Joshua chapter 21. Now let's talk about those original surveys. Just one verse here, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Well, here's just one verse dedicated to ensuring that survey markings don't get moved or altered. You'll recall that these land inheritances were perpetual. Even if you sold your land, it came back to your family in the year of Jubilee. That's found in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 55. So, don't remove those markers. Then we have some sobering laws concerning witnesses in verses 15 to 21 of chapter 19. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you." Your eyes shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. As a witness to a crime, you better be sure, or you're in for a big surprise. Better yet, make certain to have a couple other witnesses along to validate your accusation. Here's the Hebrew version of the loser pays the court fees in verse 19. If the witness is deemed by the judges to be lying, he gets the punishment instead of the accused. It's likely that Jesus based Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 on this very passage with regard to the number of witnesses needed in such a matter of church discipline. And then we find in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the first part of the chapter, some very considerate and understanding Hebrew generals. Verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Also what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. 
the officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. All right, let's talk about going to battle. Never mind the fact that the enemy has you outnumbered. God will deliver them into your hands. Notice the careful selection of troops to fight Israel's battles in these verses. Sir, I just realized I forgot to dedicate my house before I came out here to the battlefield. May I be excused? Sure, son. Just take off, the general replies. Another man says he's betrothed, more than engaged, but less than married. He's betrothed to a woman, and another says he's working on his vineyard. You're all excused, the general replies. Then one guy pops up and says, Got no house, got no vineyard, got no wife. I'm just scared. He also gets to go home. What an understanding army, that Hebrew army. Where we're going and what we're going to do takes dedication. Thus, all the fighting men in the Hebrew army were to be men who were there willingly and without hesitation. Incidentally, Gideon pared his fighting force down from 32,000 to 10,000 by just encouraging those who were fearful of battle to go home in Judges chapter 7. And then we have some battle procedures or rules of engagement in verses 10 through 20. Verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that make war with you until it is subdued. When Israel's army moves into a territory and the people surrender, they're to make them tributaries. If they fight against Israel, then kill all the men. This applied, by the way, to territories outside Canaan we see in verse 15. None of the Canaanites should be permitted to stay. That's in verse 16. That's because of the heathen worship practices might rub off on the Israelites. The Hebrews did seem to gravitate to a good-looking idol we see later on. Again, keep in mind Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, regarding these pagan inhabitants of Canaan, where it said, But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before you. 
God had already passed judgment upon these people just as certainly as he had on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Israel was simply to be God's instrument of judgment here. Also, they were instructed, when you make war against the Canaanites, take it easy on the natural resources. We see that in verses 19 and 20. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.